Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. And uh, last time we ended in verse 17. And we'll start today's broadcast in verse 18. And Lord willing, conclude in verse 25. But just a few points to recap over. Just a couple of things to bring out to remind us all about that we looked at last week. We saw from chapter 12 last week how the angel of the Lord, which is the Holy Spirit, post the Lord's ascension back to heaven, was sent to assist Peter. Also from the Gospel of Matthew, the angel of the Lord is sent twice to assist Joseph. Yet Gabriel, according to Luke 1 and 2, I believe, was sent to Mary to give her some information, a word of knowledge about her soon-to-be virgin birth. So, for me, this is very interesting because the angel of the Lord, being the Holy Spirit, is the third member of the Godhead. And he wasn't sent to Mary, the so-called Queen of Heaven, but he was sent to Peter and also Joseph. And the angel of the Lord also told Joseph to name the newborn king, Jesus, meaning Jehovah saves. Also from chapter 12, when James, the brother of Zebedee, is murdered, or maybe I should say martyred, by King Herod, known as Archelaus. No church council was called to replace him. Now I assume you all notice that, because our Catholic friends will have the audacity, they have the audacity, they have the view that, or they hold to the view that, in the early church, a council after a council was called to replace some of the apostles. Now I don't think that anybody can replace an apostle. See, we were told back in Acts chapter 1 that when Judas fell, when, uh, when Judas betrayed the Lord, a church council was called to replace him. But I don't use that word council because a council is normally at enmity with the Lord's people. Just look at Trent. Just look at Nicaea. And so when the word council appears in scripture, it's normally concerning a group of unsaved people, primarily men, plotting against the Lord's people. So it's very interesting to me that when James is martyred, no church group, or as the King James calls it, conference, was called to replace him. He said the church is built, past tense, on the prophets, the apostles, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There are no apostles today, there are no prophets today. We live by faith, not by sight. So please be careful if you are into this apostolic movement, if you're part of a group which claims apostolic authority, that you don't fall into that trap. Because nobody replaced James when he was martyred, and yet when Judas betrayed the Lord and hung himself, the church replaced him. And yes, I know some people are of the opinion that perhaps the early church should have waited for Paul to come along and make number 12. Well, that's fair enough, but I will say this is a quick footnote that in Revelation chapter 4, it speaks about the 24 elders in heaven. And there's two groups there. There's the 12 sons of Jacob, which represent Israel, and the other 12 elders represent the apostles. And I made the case last time in my last video that the church is in heaven throughout the tribulation. And that's represented by the 12 apostles. And I think that Saul of Tarsus, later becoming Paul, or later becomes Paul, makes up number 12. I know some people think it's Matthias. Well, the jury's out on that one as far as I can tell. But from my own opinion, I think that Saul of Tarsus makes number 12. And he represents the church in heaven during the Great Tribulation. Also, John Mark is found in this chapter, wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
and John Mark was a friend and an associate of Peter. But what's interesting to me is that John Mark, when he writes the Gospel of Mark, doesn't give the account from Mark, excuse me, from Matthew 16, where it says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He doesn't give us that account. And that's interesting to me because that's one of the main texts that the Catholics use to argue for Pope Peter. So if it's so important, why doesn't Mark record it? In fact, if it's so important, why doesn't Matthew, Mark, Luke and John record it? It's only found once, and that's Matthew chapter 16. Now, I'm not going to negate it. Peter was a leader in the early church. And you can see how important he is because the Holy Spirit is sent to rescue him from a public execution. But that text, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, is not duplicated in Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, or John's gospel. It's only found in one gospel, Matthew chapter 16. Also, we saw last time how Herod wanted to publicly execute Peter, like he did to Jesus. This king, Herod, known as Archelaus, was a sadistic tyrant. And his father was no better. In fact, his father was even worse than himself. And as we read through Acts of Apostles, I think there's one more king that comes down the line. And the tragedy is that people such as this are on the wrong side of history. Herod was despised by the Jews and was looked upon with suspicion amongst the Romans. He had the authority from Rome to govern the Israelites, and yet the Israelites for the most despised him. He was a puppet leader, and yet he has great power, he has great authority. He put John the Baptist to death. He put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. He's just martyred James, verse 2, from chapter 12, and he wants to do the same to Peter. And yet, like I said last time, and I'll say it again, if Peter was the Pope of Rome, if Peter was this great leader in the early church, wouldn't he have gone straight Peter? Wouldn't he have gone for Peter straight away? Wouldn't he have singled out Peter and put him to death first of all? Why go for James? The truth of the matter is that the early church was wrong by groups of elders. Now Peter was a pillar in the early church along with James, the Lord's half-brother, and Peter and Paul are going to pretty much dominate Acts of the Apostles, but Peter, James, and Paul are probably the three top guys, the big three that dominate the New Testament church. But there's no one man calling the shots. I have to make that point. Also, we concluded last time with a lady called Rhoda. And she's an interesting character because she's part of a group that are praying for Peter's escape from jail or for his safety. And yet, Rhoda and co. are fearful when Peter arrives and starts knocking at her door. Her friends, family, initially accused her of being mad. Then they thought... It was his angel. And I took some time last week to highlight the complexity of saved people. Because we have an old nature and a new nature. And this type of scripture does show that very clearly, does it not? And the word of God says how the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You might say to yourself, well, I'm not complex. You might say to yourself, I don't have an old nature. I'm a sanctified saint. Well, this early group of Christians were fearful. They accuse her of being mad, and then they think an angel has appeared at the door. They thought it was his guardian angel. Now, like I said last time, I'll say it very briefly again, that when we get saved, it's possible that we have an angel in heaven, which beholds the Father's face, and that angel in heaven is able to be a partake of what we do here on the earth. But for us having a guardian angel per se on the earth, which goes before us, 
and helps us in situations. I'm not overly sure. I'm not sure about that. I know the Catholics hold to that. I know some Protestants hold to that. I'm not sure. But what I'm really focusing in this morning on is the fact that this group, Rhoda and Co., were fearful and couldn't believe that their prayers had been answered so quickly. And of course it was Peter. He had been rescued from an imminent death, a public execution, and you would think they'd be rejoicing that he's arrived at the house, but they are too busy bickering, worrying, and somewhat unsure about what to do. On top of that, I'll say this, that yes, Peter had an old nature, and Paul as well, he was told not to go to Jerusalem, and he went up to Jerusalem and found himself under house arrest for two years. And yet John the Baptist, he too had an old nature. You think, John the Baptist, really? Yes, John the Baptist had an old nature. In fact, if you quickly turn to Matthew chapter 11, I was reading this last night. Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has been detained. And it says in Matthew eleven three, And he said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? 6. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What's going on there? Well, John has been detained. John is somewhat confused. He's asking himself, what's going on here? Why are the Jews treating the Lord with contempt? Why are they trying to trip him up? Why are they trying to stop his ministry progressing? Why aren't they rejoicing? Why aren't they receiving him in large numbers? What's going on? You see, John the Baptist didn't understand the church age. He didn't really understand the cross either. He too was experiencing what we call progressive revelation. See, to be fair to John, the Old Testament prophets wrote about the first coming and the second coming, but omitted the church age. Because the church age was conditional on the Jews receiving the Messiah or not receiving the Messiah. And because the Jews, for the most part, didn't receive the Messiah, the church age was ushered in. So I'm not going to be too hard on John and say he was an awful man. He was not. In fact, the Lord goes on to say in verse 11, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He says a great man was John the Baptist. In fact, he says, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. He's going to commend his cousin who has two natures. You have two natures. Uh, everyone who ever got saved has two natures. And as I say, John, just to wrap up his dilemma, was confused. He didn't know what was going on. And that's why he says, should we look for another? In other words, are you going to come? Are you the Messiah? Or is there somebody else who's going to come after you? It shows the complexity of mankind. It shows the fact that John only had limited knowledge. And yet the Lord commends him nevertheless. And he goes on to be martyred. Which suggests that when Herod, known as Archelaus, gets his comeuppance, you see what's going on. It's just possible that the Lord has suspended judgment over this king. It's just possible that this king's public mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ and his execution of James is the reason for his ultimate execution by the Lord. So the Lord has the ability to take a life or give life. He can give, he can take, he can even suspend sentence. And that happens many times in scripture. So several points to open today's broadcast. And maybe I'll come back and offer some more thoughts later to this problem that we all experience, the two natures of the believer. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 18. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. A great panic has now erupted. Where's he gone? He's been detained by a group of soldiers, expert in warfare. And no doubt, word got around quickly that Peter 
has escaped. Hold that thought. 19. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Like Matthew, in reference to the Lord's ascension, and the Jews start to plot, saying that if word comes to the governor's ears, we will say that his disciples came by night and freed him. And they paid money to the Roman soldiers. And of course, you know that that word got back to Herod. And no doubt he put them to death as well. If you had a prisoner who escaped in your watch, you were put to death. There's no doubt about it. So this group of men, professional soldiers, would have been put to death for his escape. And that is almost mirrored, is it not, in Acts chapter 16, in reference to the Philippian jailer. He thinks the prisoners have escaped. And he's moments from suicide, because he knew that he'd be put to death. And Paul says, don't do yourself any harm, we are still here. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know the rest of the scripture, believe from the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Of course, the house would be in reference to those that were over the age of accountability, those that were old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. I won't go into that this morning, but that's the cross-reference to what has happened here. And yet the tragedy is that this group of individuals don't get saved. These soldiers are put to death, 19, and probably those in Matthew 28, And yet, in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer gets saved. Hold that thought, please. 20. And Herod was highly displeased with them, Attire and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, having made blasts the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. The attention to detail, once again, is incredible. Exemplary, really. And it goes back to what I've been saying all along, that the Lord sees and hears everything. When we get to the judgment, when we see the great white throne judgment, and let me say this, please, if I may, that I believe that the church will be at the great white throne judgment as observers. I think we're going to see what's going to happen. We know that wherever the king is, we are with him. And I think when the great white throne comes around and all the unsaved dead are resurrected to be judged, we are going to be there to see it. And here, Herod, highly displeased with them, Attire and Sidon, which for memory is modern day Lebanon, came down one accord, having made blasts of the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. This Herod is a politician of politicians. He's a powerful man, and yet his power is limited. In fact, back in the Gospels, he he mentions uh, Salome, his second wife's daughter, dancing for him, a very sexual dance, erotic dance, a dance which you wouldn't want somebody who you are close to, to perform for you. And uh, she pleases Herod, and he says, what we have, what can I give you? And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a dish. And he cuts John the Baptist's head off. But before he does so, he says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, which he really couldn't fulfill. Because like I say, his power, although on the one hand was pretty vast, it was also limited, because he governed under Rome's pleasure. The main power base, the main authority in Rome was Pontius Pilate, the governor of Israel, or maybe the prime minister of Israel. And I guess Herod would be like the home secretary, if I was to use the UK equivalent. But let's not get bogged down too much in the political aspect of this, because this, of course, is leading up to this king's public death. 21. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, set upon his throne and made an oration unto them. Like the popes of Rome, 
up until the Second Vatican Council. The popes would like to dress up and be carried around Rome, and they'd have the old uh, ostrich feathers to fan him, and he would like to be looked at as something special. In fact, even today, kings and queens go up to Rome to pay homage to the pope. In fact, whenever an American president goes overseas, if he's in Europe, he goes to the Vatican to brief the Pope. And I don't think they're sitting down having a Bible study either. They're talking business. They're talking about moving money around the world. They're plotting and planning. And the same is true of British prime ministers. They go to the Vatican when they're in Rome or in Europe to brief the Pope. And you think to yourself, what would they possibly have in common with each other? As far as I can recall, there's been no Catholic American president until John F. Kennedy arrived. So pre-Kennedy, no Catholic presidents, and post-Kennedy, no Catholic presidents. I might be wrong, but I can't think of any president excluding John F. Kennedy who was a Catholic. I can't think of any Catholic prime minister, apart from Tony Blair, but he didn't become a Catholic officially until he left office in 2007. But it said, upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne. Satan has a throne. Satan's throne is very powerful. I made an oration unto them. You see, you have to understand this, that all of the ungodly kings in the word of God, and there are so many of them, all types of the Antichrist. And behind the Antichrist is the devil. And that's why it says Satan is the god of this world. Lowercase g. He's the prince of the power of the air. So this world is very much in his pocket. And he's very interested in religion as well. He's so interested in religion. See, he will take worship whichever way he can get it. And this king wanted worship. This individual thought he was something special. And to be fair, he probably was to some extent. He had great authority over Israel. But as I say, his power was curtailed. It was limited because ultimately he was in submission to Pilate, the governor of Israel, who served under Caesar Augustus, the great Caesar in Rome, who around this time, I believe, was probably Nero. And then it was Titus, and then it was Domitian. But the point is, all these groups rule with a, a rod of iron, a rod of terror. They have great authority from, on the one hand, ungodly, wicked individuals. And yet the word of God says, is it not, in Romans chapter 13, that the powers that be are ordained of God. It's a paradox. Because you were told to pray for those in authority. And yet such people, for the most part, are enemies of the cross. Such people, for the most part, are going to plot to put you to death. And yet, in a way that I don't quite understand, we have to pray for them. 22. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is a voice of a God and not of a man. Worship mentality. And these people, picturing like a rock concert, shout, saying, It is a voice of a God. Lowercase g, and not of a man. If you examine Archelaus, if you examine Herod the Great, if you examine the pharaohs, if you examine the leaders of Rome, the Caesars, I think there's 15 Caesars, wicked people, really wicked. In fact, most of the Roman Caesars were pedophiles, sodomites, ungodly people. And yet the Lord allowed them to have power because as the old proverb goes, you get the governments that you deserve. This group of people, clearly ignorant, clearly deceived, are almost worshipping this king, this murderer, this tyrant, this person who has unnatural desire for his stepdaughter, 
and immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and was eaten of worms, and gave up the ghost. Josephus, a second century Roman historian, although he was Jewish, he was a Roman citizen as well, a bit like Saul of Tarsus, wrote around the late first century, early second century, that this event, this issue, in reference to the angel of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, striking him, dying by being eaten of worms, this event, according to Josephus, lasted five days. So for five days, this king was in great pain and agony, being eaten by worms from within. I don't quite understand that. You think of that scripture from Isaiah 66, and Mark chapter 9, how the worm never dies, in reference to the second death. But it says the angel of the Lord immediately put him to death. Why? Because he didn't give God the glory. He's not put to death, interestingly enough, for John the Baptist's murder, or for the Lord's crucifixion, or for the public death of James, the son of Zebedee. He could have done, of course, but no, he suspends judgment, and in the end he puts him to death for not giving God the glory. That's why people go to hell, ultimately, for not giving God the glory, and not for believing on his son. If we get this down, and we can understand the simplicity of the cross, if we can understand the plan of salvation being as simple as believing, on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection, wouldn't the world be a different place? 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Oral, tradition, word of mouth, spreads like wildfire, and then it's later written down in scripture. 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. John Mark. So 17, Peter disappears from the scene again. He'll come back in... Chapter 15, and then, to the best of my knowledge, after Acts 15, we don't read of Peter again until he writes First and Second Peter. But Peter's gone in 17 and 25. Saul returns on the scene with Barnabas, a Levite, and they got John Mark as their minister. But John Mark, as I say, wrote the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was a friend, an associate, and a travel companion with Simon Peter. And yet, John Mark doesn't give the accounts of the Lord giving the keys explicitly to Peter in Matthew 16, which finally goes back to what I said at the beginning of this message, demonstrates to me that such a scripture is not as important as our Catholic friends would have us believe. And yet, also from this chapter, all 25 verses, you saw the two natures of the believer, the complexity of saved people. You saw the angel of the Lord being dispatched from heaven to rescue Simon Peter from an almost imminent death. You saw Herod the king getting his comeuppance, being eaten of worms in great pain and agony, almost dying from within. And according to Josephus, an early writer, an unsaved Jew, he says that this king spent five days in agony, great pain. Of course, no antibiotics, in those days, no paracetamol, no medication at all. And all of his seers, all of his prophets, all of his holy men couldn't help him. In his day, he was something special. But when he came to the end of his life, he was nothing. And this is the truth of the matter that mankind, if he's not born again, is nothing. And that's why it's so important to be born again, to make your life count. But I guess the tragedy of these verses in reference to Herod, and I'll close today's broadcast with this thought is how easy it is for mankind to be on the wrong side of history. This man had great knowledge. This man had academia at his disposal. 
and yet he missed the king, he missed the early church in reference to their leadership, and he's died as he lived, lost, and he goes to hell. It's tragic, but that's the reality of mankind. You might think you have everything at your disposal, you might have the greatest diplomats, scholars, and yet, if you lose the simplicity of Christ, all of those individuals are going to be absolutely worthless to you. And I'll close one last time in 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, the mother church, of course, when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And also, this man was found in Mark chapter 15. And they come to detain the Lord. And it says, a young man escaped almost naked. So that will conclude today's broadcast. And next week we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 13.